All right, I had a video I was going to show last week. We didn't have time to show. Let's get start off with that. Yeah, go for it. Please do. You bet. All right, it's kind of a funny little clip from RC Sproul. <laughs> yeah, for a second. RC Sproul right. hosts the Ligonier Conference annually. It's very fine to see him doing well with a He's panel not. of brilliant <laughs> minds discussing deep theological subjects like, is there a difference when a creed says that Jesus is fully God, fully man, versus the same creed that says Jesus is truly God and truly man? also is also trying to say that he was not a human shell with only a divine mind. He had a human mind. He had a human mind, right? And all the limitations of human right. thinking, right? Touching his human nature, he was not omniscient. Touching his divine nature, he was absolutely omniscient. But we, we can't separate those, but we must distinguish them or all kinds of mischief but takes fully place. Fully God, fully man, with all the reasonableness of man. Well, I prefer truly God and truly man because it can be confused. And when you say that Jesus was fully God and fully man, if you mean by that, that that one person was absolutely, totally God and that's all, then you'd be denying his humanity. Or if you say he's fully man, then there's no room for his deity. That's why we like to say vera homo vera is truly God, truly man. <laughs> That's what I meant. That, that's what I meant. I knew that's what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, John, Johnny Mac, do you always make me have to define what you meant? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's kind of fun. Watching them joke around with each other. <clears throat> All right, so yeah, that's coming on the heels of our lesson last week on the hypostatic union. You guys have any other developing thoughts or questions on hypostatic union after that lesson last week? Or do we have it down pat now? Yeah. <laughs> we will forever have questions on how that works, but that's a good thing because so, our, um, our God is like that. Actually, I shared with Jeremy, a question that had popped up after last week. And in the uh, PowerPoint, it said that um, he had no physicality, right, prior to his incarnation. Yeah. Okay. So then I'm thinking to myself, well, what about in the Garden of Eden? When Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree, and they hear God walking through the through the garden of Eden, and they hide themselves. You gotta have physicality in order to make noise. Yeah. I don't know about that. Jeremy and I had some discussion on that <laughs> with, too. With a, with his voice, God uh, created the world. So. True. True. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we had some back and forth on that, and maybe you didn't notice, but I didn't read the PowerPoint verbatim at that point. Okay. I said that uh, he was. Um, I think the PowerPoint read in a non-physical form, but I think that he was in a unique form. I think that was actually going back to the Christophanies, not to the hypostatic union, but 
yeah, Jesus in his Christophany presented himself in a unique way. So oftentimes he would appear normal, right? And we talk about how when the the angel of the Lord appeared to Balaam, the donkey at first could see him, but Balaam couldn't. And then he made himself visible to Balaam. Right. So there's something different going on, right? Metaphysically weird or at least hidden from our view. And so, yeah, I wasn't comfortable with non-physical. And I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yes, that's on. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> when he was in the burning bush, it was non-physical. Yes. Uh, the pillar, the smoke, the cloud, that's non-physical. Well, far. not human not form. Human. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's for us to say that he had the same, that what we're, what, the only thing we're trying to avoid is to say that he was just like us when he appeared. Yeah. Because that only happened at the incarnation. So whatever kind of physicality he had was a physicality that didn't need to be born. It was a physicality that didn't die. It was a physicality that could come and go. It was a physicality that was temporary, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Um, not exactly like, but akin to his post-resurrection body, where that is physical, but he that it never dies, it never decays. He could show up and walk through walls in the door. Yeah. So, so there's something there that's a different. Different dimension, almost, uh, way of thinking about it. It's not atoms like we know atoms. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, so not saying that there wasn't a, a material nature to the pre-incarnate Christ, because there was, but it was different somehow. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. And just like last week when we were talking about the hypostatic union, we had these different um, divisions we wanted to stay away from, right? These different ditches that we didn't want to fall in. Same kind of rule goes with the the nature of of Christ, both his human nature and his divine nature. There are limits to what we can know and understand, and um, that's why it's important that we be careful with the the words that we use and the terminology that we use, so that we don't ascribe to God something that isn't true of Him. Well, and it, I just as a comment, I think that the four ditches, right? That's actually really effective because Christ is unique, yeah. right? Absolutely unique. And, you know, it's not like you got a ditch on the right and on the left, and you can go this way, and you can go this way. No, 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 no. Yeah, we're, we're kind of boxed in. Yeah, right. So I thought that was effective. That would like make a nice PowerPoint, so we can say. Yeah, so we, we know where we can't go, and really that defines orthodoxy a lot more than um, having specific definitions for who Christ is because he is impossible to define. We can define what he isn't a lot more effectively. We can define what he is and how his two natures come together and work together. Um, they're separate. They need to be distinguished from one another, but not separated from one another. So we need to keep that in mind. Any other thoughts or questions on Christology? It's enough to make you think, right? I, I just like to use the word supernatural. God is supernatural. Yeah. <clears throat> what we see is, quote, laws of nature. He's not bound by those. Absolutely. He's supernatural. Yep. Yeah, definitionally, he is outside of that, right? Um, above and beyond that. And we... 
it's kind of funny to say we, we can't put them in a box, but in that illustration, we kind of put them in a box letting us know where we can't go. Um, but he is not bound by the laws of nature which he himself imposed upon us. Now, so we know that uh, Satan apparently only appeared as a serpent to them. This must have been physical, we think, when he showed up. But uh, it kind of makes you wonder, could God obviously could have showed up as Christ and they wouldn't know Christ from, from God. You know? But I guess if he would have, they would have somewhere in there would have described him. Wow, he showed up and man, he had this on, they looked like this or whatever. I don't know. Serpent's pretty obvious, <laughs> speak of that. Yeah. And serpent was definitely physical. So, yeah, I think that Jesus was walking with them in the garden. Um, that's my personal take on that. But that's Tufus. Tufus. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray and we'll get into the virgin birth. God, we thank you that you are the, the transcendent, all-knowing creator of the universe. That you are the great I am, the king of kings, the lord of lords, and... You became a man. You lowered yourself lower than the angels. You took on flesh so that you could lay down your life for us. God, what a, what a crazy, humbling thought. We are so undeserving. We are so thankful and grateful for your, your perfect plan, for your perfect will, for your sacrifice. God, we pray that as we look at the, the virgin birth and we um, contemplate Christmas and this season and our just who we are in this universe and the the sphere of influence we have among our friends and family and coworkers that you would impact us with the the weightiness of the incarnation a story that we've heard hundreds of times god that you would make it real for us and that we would be impacted by it all over again in a new fresh way and that that would impact the way that we live the way that we think our evangelism and um, just the way that we, we shine for you. God, help us to be lights in a perverse and crooked universe that we would be pointing people to, to a God as amazing as you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, virgin birth, impeccability. We'll save that for Jeremy. He can tackle that next week. All right. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Again, kind of going back to uh, the, the quote that we had last week, that the, the hypostatic union is Jesus adding on flesh. He wasn't subtracting anything from his deity, but he was adding to his deity humanity. It was subtraction by addition. Uh, Wayne Grudem's quote here kind of goes along the same line, that he didn't take away from what he was, but he became what he was not. He added flesh. And once again, speaking to Nestorianism, that we need to realize that we have to start with the, the divine nature of Christ, that God always was. He is eternal. He is without beginning, without end, from everlasting to everlasting. And he took on flesh. It wasn't that the flesh took on deity, but the deity took on flesh. I think we, we all know that, but again, we need to be precise in our language. Where do we first hear about the virgin birth of Jesus in the Bible? Sunday school question. Back in Isaiah, someone, right? Uh, before Genesis, that. Before that, my goodness. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. 
Isaiah. We'll spend some time in Isaiah, but yes, in Genesis 3 is the first time that we see uh, a hint, really, of the virgin birth. So, two main Old Testament passages that point to the miraculous conception. Like you said, Rex, Isaiah 7 is one of them, and then uh, Genesis 3 is the first time that we see this mention. So Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly, you will go and dust. You will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. And so we see here, um, Genesis 3 teaches that there is a coming one who will crush the serpent's head, and he is described as her seed, which is unique in, in language. Usually it's the, the man who is spoken of having the seed. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the seed and that Satan is a serpent. You can read about that in Revelation 12 about Israel and um, the woman, the dragon, and the son. And that's speaking of Jesus and Satan. The traditional Christian interpretation is that it is the first direct expression of the gospel. That is Genesis 3.15. It recognizes the essential conflict between Satan and the Lord and indicates that this conflict also will involve the people of God and the followers of Satan. Let's look up those passages real quick and speak of um, people being children of Satan. So this isn't just... Uh, reference to Christ himself and to Satan himself, but it involves followers of Christ and followers of Satan. Who's got John 8, 44? We're headed that way. All right, Travis. Acts 13, 10. All right, Jerry. And then 1 John 3, 10. Rex. All right, go ahead when you get them. You are, you are of your father the devil, and you want, to do the, you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. All right, so re- referring back to Genesis 3.15, we see that Satan um, is the father, father of these other liars, that we are, um, by nature, children of wrath, right? We are enemies of God. We are children of Satan. And so we see that it goes much farther than just Satan and Jesus, but those followers of those two. And that's a great verse to memorize for evangelism around here because we live in a culture that says we are all children of God. And we have nothing to worry about because we're already his children. Well, that's absolutely not the case. So John 8.44 is a good one to commit to memory, if not the whole verse and at least the the reference. Acts 13.10. And he said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, do you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Hmm. All right. So again, um, we act as as children of the devil before we are in Christ, because that is what we are. And John, First John three ten makes that pretty clear. You got that, Rex? This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. All right. So we will know them by their fruits, right? Uh, Stay there for a minute, Rex. We're going to be back there in just a second. The seed of the woman is a clear reference to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Um, Again, back in Genesis 3, 15. The Lord Jesus, who came to destroy the works of the devil, the proto-evangelium, prophesied that Christ would deliver a death blow to Satan, but in so doing would suffer death to himself. So this word means the, that's a reference back to that, that verse, Genesis 3.15, the first time that we see a reference of the coming Messiah, the first uh, good news, first evangelism, speaking of Jesus coming to crush a head of the serpent. Uh, Galatians 3, 16 through 19. Will somebody grab that? And then these are awesome verses. Hebrews 2, 14. And then Rex, you're already right there in 1 John 3. I can grab Hebrews 2, 14. Or somebody else can grab Galatians 3, 16 through 19. Okay. Okay. Whenever you're ready, Jerry. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. If the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. All right. So again, there we see that the seed, singular, is speaking of Jesus, and it was the seed of the woman, um, clearly speaking about Christ there. So we've talked, and we'll see this again in Isaiah 7, that when we were talking about the types of Christ and the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, it's easy for us to to make a stretch sometimes and to say, oh, well, that looks like what we see in the New Testament. So we're reading our Old Testament text through New Testament lenses, right? And sometimes we'll, we'll try to make a stretch about well, there's a connection possibly here, or this was foreshadowing that. And it can be dangerous to, to get into those territories. And so when we have something like Galatians 3 that is pointing directly back there and saying this seed was referring to Christ, that is ideal. That's what we're looking for, or a direct New Testament um, passage saying this is what that is talking about. And we'll get into that in a second and see that the same is true with Isaiah 7. All right, Hebrews 2.14, talking about how Jesus came for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. It says, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is flesh and blood, and through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Isn't that a cool verse? Mm-hmm. That he renders him powerless through his death. Um, going right back to Genesis 3, that Satan will bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. 
And you can imagine that Satan thought that he was victorious in Christ's death. But we know that that's where the power comes from, from his death. That we look at the cross and we glory in the cross because that is what gives us power over our sin. That's what gives us power over our death. Jesus was victorious at the cross and proved it at the resurrection. All right, in 1 John 3, 8, Rex. Got it. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, of this, the, reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. All right. That's why he came. So we have several reasons why he came in Scripture, right? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came so that he could glorify the Father. And here it says that he came so that he could destroy the works of the devil. All right. Genesis 3 foretells a virgin's conception by noting the coming seed as hers. It is her seed. Again, it's unique. It's a secondary teaching in the text, but it's still important to recognize. Nowhere else in the Old Testament does the progeny belong to a woman. It's typically speaking of a man, always speaking of a man. If then the promise culminates in Christ, the fact that the victory over the serpent is promised to the posterity of the woman, not of the man, acquires this deeper significance. That as it was through the woman that the craft of the devil brought sin and death into the world, so it is also through the woman that the grace of God will give to the fallen human race the conqueror of sin, of death, and of the devil. The destroyer of the serpent was born of a woman without a human father. That's from commentary of the Old Testament. Romans 16.20. This kind of ties into our sermon last week. Somebody want to read that or should I grab it? I got it. All right. Romans 16.20. Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. All right. So the God of peace is going to crush Satan under whose feet? Under your feet, right? So Paul writing to the church, to believers. So just as we spoke about last week at the, the end of the sermon, that everything has been given to us by God who has everything. Everything is God's. We are Christ and Christ is God's. And it's been given to us. And just as Jesus has ultimate victory over Satan, um, as we are in Christ, so do we. So it's pretty, pretty cool verse there. Just thinking about the, the future and the hope that we have in Christ and the victory that we have in him. Isaiah 7, like you mentioned, Rex, foretells a virgin's conception by using a local woman as a type of Mary. Uh, I think there's some disagreement on this verse, but I definitely think that it's speaking of a a local woman there in Isaiah, that Isaiah is talking to a a local woman. We've talked about before in prophecy that um, it's common to see both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, that there is a prophecy that um, takes place in that localized region, that localized um, point of, of space and time, but it has farther implications. And we see that in Isaiah 7. So it's talking about a virgin will conceive and give birth. That's 
looking forward to, to Jesus, but there are also local aspects um, that Isaiah is talking about to a woman in Isaiah 7. Where Genesis 3.15 is weak, um, put that in air quotes, this one is strong and vice versa. Remember the gospel is a mystery revealed. So one verse will speak more strongly to one aspect of the virgin birth and the other will counter it. Um, we haven't turned to Isaiah. Let's turn to Isaiah 7. All right, and I'm going to read from, I'll start at verse 10. Then the Lord again spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two, got two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the famous Christmas verse that we always point to is 14 right there in the middle. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, uh, speaking to, to Ahaz. Watch what I'm going to do and, and see that I am uh, a God who who can do amazing things. This is going to be your sign that the virgin will be with child and will bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah is perhaps speaking of his own son, we don't know for sure, whose progression of age identified a timeline within which God would prove his faithfulness to preserve his people. That's from Bible Knowledge Commentary. Isaiah 7 has direct New Testament backing. So again, talking about making jumps and leaps and assumptions in types and shadows that are pointing to Christ or to the New Testament. We don't have to do that with Isaiah because of what we have in Matthew 1, 20 through 23. Let's go ahead and turn there and we'll get somebody to read that for us. Matthew 1, it's a popular chapter this time of year, verses 20 through 23. Who's got that for us? <clears throat> Consider this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived is uh, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. They shall bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All right, so right there in the text, it tells us in quotes from Isaiah, um, this is why this took place, so that this verse would be fulfilled. So this is a far fulfillment of what was happening in Isaiah chapter 7. Going back to verse 21, 
uh, says that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And remember last week we looked at, I think it was last week, we looked at Hebrews 1.3, and we saw that um, it said that Jesus would, um, let me turn back there real quick so I don't misquote it. So Hebrews 1.3 says that he is a radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power when he had by himself made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That by himself isn't in all translations, but it's a reflection of the fact that it's in the middle voice in the Greek, that he did it by himself. Nobody else did it for him. And we have that same instance here grammatically in verse 21 that he by himself will save his people from their sins. So that's kind of cool. Does anybody have the new King James? I'll break you do, right? Does it say that in 21? Matthew 1, 21. And she will bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from the sin. Oh, I guess not. It did in Hebrews 1, but not Matthew 1. But, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, do you have a footnote in yours? Uh, 1.1. Yeah. It just says the name actually means Savior. Oh. All right. Jesus. Cool. Nasby has a footnote. Those footnotes are helpful for sure. All right. Most important chapter in the New Testament regarding the virgin birth is Romans 5, which might kind of catch us off guard. It's not in the Gospels, not Matthew 1 or, or Luke 1 or uh, some of those other ones we might think of, but Romans 5. So again, let's turn to, to Romans 5. The Gospels explain and defend that it happened, that is the virgin birth, and Romans 5 explains why it happened. So we get our, our theology from Romans 5 and our history from the Gospels. Paul in Romans is describing a dichotomy between Adam and the second Adam, or the last Adam, that is Christ. And we'll see a couple of different things. Let's first go through and read this passage, though. So Romans 5 and... We get somebody to read verses 12 through 19. All right, and again, let's try to focus on the differences between the first Adam, Adam, and the last Adam, Jesus. Romans 5, 12 through 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed for there, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the appearance of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, 
much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. All right. So, you guys see the, the parallelism there? Paul's trying to make it pretty clear and talk about what we see in Adam and what we see in Christ and the, the picture that Adam is of Christ. Once again, we see in verse 14, very clearly, very plainly, that Adam is a type of Christ. It says at the end of the verse, that Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And so, language like that makes us look back and say, okay, well, sure, absolutely, Adam was a type of Christ. And that's what we want to look for when we're trying to make those connections from the Old Testament to the New Testament, rather than uh, just inferring that similar circumstances mean that God was foreshadowing what he was going to be doing in the New Testament through Christ. So some of the um, parallelism we see is that sin entered the world through Adam, and then grace entered through Christ. Death entered through Adam, and life enters through Christ, and condemnation through Adam, but justification through Jesus. Verse 16 says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So Adam is clearly a picture of Christ. Christ is the better, just as we read throughout Hebrews. And Christ is better than... Um, all these pictures and types and shadows that are pointing to him. They are the shadow. He is the substance. He is the, the thing that the shadow is pointing to. Thoughts or questions on that? Well, it's really clarifying through all of that discussion of how, or the contrasting Adam gave us sin, Jesus gave us grace in some places it says for all men, but verse 17 makes it very clear that it applies only to those who receive the abundance of grace who receive the gift so it's not universal yep, yeah and Mark and Dean just went through this yep. in the last couple of weeks in their class if you haven't listened to that online you can do that, they did a good job of going through and making that clear and pointing out that point, it's not teaching universalism we need to remember context when we're trying to interpret scripture and try to figure out what it says so when you come across a verse that says that um, all will be made alive you have to ask yourself, well, what is it talking about there? Who is the all that's being referred to there? What is the, the context of that passage? So, yeah, right before 18, um, here I'll read 17 18 together. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, so we find a, a qualifying term there, right? And of the gift of the righteousness, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So not everybody, but those who 
receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign. So then, as through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. That doesn't mean everyone indiscriminately, but to those who have received that gift, right? So, context is key. You need to keep that in mind. Anything else? All right. Romans 5 teaches inherited sin. So that's your blank on your page. Inherited sin. That Adam is our, our federal head and he is the reason that we are sinners by nature. Define the connection between one man and all in this verse. So I think Jerry already brought that out by jumping forward to verse 17. But going back to 12 which is another verse that is good to commit to memory. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so there, we see that we are all in Adam, right? He is the, the father of all of humanity, all the human race. And so that all is speaking to, to everybody indiscriminately. But going down to verse 17 and 18, we find that qualifying term. So when we compare it to 18, because of Adam's sin, we are all condemned, but we are not all in Christ. That's qualified by verse 17. Speaking of headship, that Adam is our head. And so um, all of humanity is split into two different groups, right? We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. Adam is the federal head of all people regarding relationship with God, but is he the head of Christ? And we'll get into that in a second, but talking about federal headship, he is our, our representative, just as we will be represented by one president someday, right? We don't know if that president is going to be Trump or Biden or Harris, but that will be our representative as Americans. Right now, we are represented by Trump, right? He is our active sitting president, whether you, you like it or not. And there are those people who say, well, he's not my president, but if you're an American, he's your president, like it or not. And if you are a human, like it or not, Adam is your federal head. We are in him in the sense that we inherit sin. Um, it's natural. Yeah, lots of people want to say Adam's not mine. His sin doesn't affect me. Um, and that's that's one of the articles of faith in the Mormon church. Yeah. That Adam's sin doesn't affect us. Yeah. Swingness. Makes just as much logic, just as much sense as saying, well, it's not my president. Well, if you live in this country and you call yourself a citizen of this nation, then yeah, that person is your representative, your your head. So, um, the question again, is Adam the head of Christ? And so we have several verses that we can look up as we consider that. Um, we'll go through and read and see what conclusion we come to. So let's divvy up these verses. Who's got Matthew 16 with Peter's great confession? We can grab those. Jerry. All right. Travis, will you grab Mark 10, 45? John 3, 13. Rex. John 5, 30, 36 through 38. 
uh, Jim, and then Jerry will get 1 Corinthians 11.3. We'll just read those all in a row and then see what conclusions we come to. Is Adam the federal head of Christ? Remember, we just talked about how Christ is truly man and truly God. So, it's a legitimate question, right? All right, go ahead and read them off whenever you get them. In Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon of Arjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a <clears throat> ransom for many. No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who, uh, who came from heaven, the Son of Man. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. <clears throat> you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the head and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Alright. So, having considered those verses, what insight does that give us into this question? Is Adam the head of Christ? No. No. Why not? Alright, add a boy. Why else? His title as son of God or son of man precludes the possibility that he is under Adam's headship like we are. Well, I mean, theologically, right? Just at the theological level, like Trent is saying, um, the father had to have a pure sacrifice. Blemish. And that sin is a blemish. Yeah, sure. Right. Hence, like it said earlier in, in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. And, you know, that secondary doctrine that we were talking about, that's a, the virgin birth of a woman without a father, basically. She's, she's overcome by the Holy Spirit and, and becomes pregnant. So it's, it's the virgin, in other words, both the virgin birth and that understanding of the virgin birth is critical. If you're going to be orthodox, you have to believe it's the virgin birth. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. We have to remember that he is unique, right? He came from heaven. He pre-existed Adam, just as he pre-existed Moses before, or Abraham, before Abraham was I am. He pre-existed Moses. He pre-existed David. He pre-existed Adam. He created Adam. 
And so for Adam to be his head when he is ahead of Adam doesn't work, right? Well, it goes back to Christ's father was not a man, it was God. Yep. Yeah, he was. That, that separates him from, from Adam in that sense. Yep. Yeah, the Holy Spirit indwelt Mary, and uh, she conceived by the Holy Spirit. We're going to say something, Jerry? No. Okay. <laughs> Jesus was sent from heaven. He does not have his origin in humanity, but rather it's quite the opposite. Humanity has its origin in Christ. If Jesus is the one who reverses Adam's curse, he cannot be under the curse like the rest of us. His claims and his followers' claims demand an eternal pre-existence. If Jesus had been born like everyone else in hum human history, then he is a sinner, like you mentioned. We have to hold to that virgin birth because of the fact that he is without sin. It would mean that he is only human. And again, that's where Nestorianism messes up. It takes his humanity and adds to his humanity um, his divine nature, which is backwards. And then it would also mean that he is completely finite rather than infinite. And we don't hold to that at all. It mean that he is a part of the problem in the world. You can't save the world from their sin when you yourself are infected by that sin. So the virgin birth, really, like you said, is uh, foundational to Christianity and what it means to be in Christ, um, what it means to be a Christian. We have to hold to the virgin birth, and we can't compromise on that. More texts on the virgin birth. We've got three other passages here. Let's take a look at those. Matthew. It's interesting. Uh, well, yeah, but right around 100 years ago, the virgin birth is a hot topic in the Christian world as uh, Harvard and Princeton and universities like that really began to go liberal and the, the Presbyterian churches started in the Northeast started to go liberal. That was one of the main topics was the virgin birth. Uh -huh. And kind of wondering what's going to come up again. I feel like it's subsided <coughs> a little bit in the Christian world. And there are other things that we're bickering about now. But I wonder when this will come back to the forefront because it is so key and so important. Um, if we've met, if right now we can think of it like everybody knows that, everybody believes that. What's the big deal? But it could very likely come up again, and we have to hold our ground on that one. Yep. That, that is, again, definitional to Orthodox Christianity. That defines what it means to be a Christian. So I think we can look at those um, disagreements within church history as. Um, a negative, but really, I think it's a good thing in the fact that God is separating out His church and defining His church more, more clearly. That these are my people, and these are the people who deny the truth that I I represent. And so, yeah, it was a couple hundred years ago that in Germany, this idea was going around that there's no such thing as a miracle that. Um, the virgin birth can't be true, that scripture isn't inherent and infallible, that's, that's a joke, that's silly, right? Um, going back to, I think it was you, Jim, who said that our God is a, a supernatural God, right? He is 
um, not bound by these laws. But in Germany, they said, well, no, we're, we're materialists, and we need to have uh, answer and account for everything in the Bible. So these supernatural events, like the virgin birth, couldn't have actually taken place. And then that kind of drifted and transferred over to America. And so I think there was a, a huge gap in time that that took place. Um, Hundred years or so before that information actually took root here and affected us in America. But information, as we know, travels a lot quicker today than it did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And so we can look at different pockets of the world, and really, America is kind of defining how other nations move in their theology and their understanding of God and in every other aspect of, of commerce and. Um, America kind of drives things, it seems, these days. And so we are the ones who are exporting our bad theology, and we're doing it at a faster rate than what Germany did a couple hundred years ago. So the, the German theologians that came over were claimed from Hitler, and they founded the Frankfurt School. It might actually have been a program. They, found, they founded the Frankfurt School at Columbia University. And that's what's driving, you know, like Jeremy was saying, the questioning of the, of the virgin birth was something that was a hot topic many, many years ago. But today, that Frankfurt School is what's driving critical race theory, intersectionality, in essence, Marxism, um, social Marxism. But that ideology, that materialistic ideology is creeping into the church. And that's, you know, the... <clears throat> In other words, the doctrines that, that we hold as, as believers in Christ, you know, sometimes you gotta hold them hard. Yeah. You gotta draw a hard line. It's almost like that those groups have skipped over the Christian theology implications of what they teach, and they've gone to the fruit of it all. It's like, wait, eventually they're gonna go back and realize what that implies for their Christian theology. And so all these churches that have put liberal thinking forward Eventually, it's going to reach their theology if they've skipped over it for the time being. Yeah. yeah and that's where we'll see a, a true separation, where maybe we'll see some that will recognize and, and repent and be like, well, wait, that's, that's a step too far. That doesn't match up with, with my theology. But there will be others who will cave on their theology in favor of their, their liberal thinking. Okay. To, to deny the possibility of a virgin birth, just to deny... Uh, supernatural, then you have to deny the whole Bible. Yeah. Because all the miracles, most of them are all supernatural events, even creation. Yeah. So you go back to Genesis 1, if God can't accomplish the supernatural, then he's not God at all. And we, we're right back to evolution. Yeah, and usually it starts the other way around. It starts with evolution, totally that affects atheist, yeah. other stuff. Well, and I think piggybacking on what Jeremy said, they have to go back and examine the foundations of what they believe, but the problem is, is that, look, and I mean this seriously, if we're saying that it's a materialistic universe, what purpose is there for pretending that there is a God? All you're, all you're doing is you've got this fluffed up view of atheism that's, that's masquerading as a church. And, and ultimately, 
people do want to know that there are absolutes. And that's why as you deviate from that, people become more and more given to their sin and more and more miserable, basically. Not only do people want to know that there are absolutes, people do know that they are absolutes. And they live yeah. in light of that every day. Um, they're just suppressing the truth in their own righteousness, and it's going to catch up to them at some point. Yeah. Hopefully now, rather than when they're bowing the knee to Christ in, when it's too late, and they don't have opportunity to repent. All right, let's check out these three passages real quick. Um, Matthew 1.16, Luke chapter 1, and Galatians 4.4-5. Who's got those for us? Galatians 4, I got it. All right, hit us with it. 1.16. All right, let's read them off. Matthew 1.16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. All right. The genealogy above that. Yeah, above that was a genealogy, and it's going down saying so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. And then it said that... Um, Joseph was the son of Jacob, right? But the wife of Mary. So it kind of transitions and it puts the emphasis and the focus on Mary, who was married to Joseph, um, rather than Joseph, because he wasn't the actual father of Jesus. All right, and then Luke 1 26 through 35. Um, okay, go ahead. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. All right. So, um, very popular chapter this time of year. We need to remember that um, Jesus was, once again, not fathered by a man, but was a Holy Spirit who overcame Mary. And then Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Yeah. yeah. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive full rights of sons. All right. Once again, this doctrine is vital to the Christian faith. He was born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law and receive the full right as sons. That's vital to our Christian faith, uh, something we can't compromise on. So as we head into the season, remember that, take opportunities to share that with others and the theological implications of the virgin birth, why that's important. Um, it's not just a holiday, right? It's uh, a holiday that is central to our faith.
Let's pray. God, once again, we thank you for uh, who you are and for who we are in light of you. We pray that you would give us continued opportunity to share your good news with others, that you would, in our own hearts and minds, help us to be in awe and worship of you and the fact that you would step into your creation uh, for sinners like us, that we would, we would rejoice in the fact that you have defeated Satan. Uh, it's a, a done deal, and uh, you, you have won. And we thank you for that. We, we rejoice in your strength, your power, and who you are. And pray that you would prepare our hearts to continue to worship you. Pray this in your name, amen. amen.